We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Dr. Kevin Kwashi is a professor of English at Brown University. He's the author of The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture, and Black Women, Identity and Cultural Theory, Unbecoming the Subject. He is one of the co-editors of New Bones, Contemporary Black Writers in America. His essays have appeared in journals such as Meridians, African American Review, The Massachusetts Review, and Thurium, and The Black Scholar. His most recent book is Black Aliveness, or A Poetics of Being. At Brown, Dr. Kwashi teaches Black cultural and literary studies in addition to writing on teaching on Black feminist women's studies, Black queer studies, and aesthetics. Kevin Kwashi, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here today. So, to begin this conversation, which I'm so delighted to be engaging in and, and I'm looking forward to getting into your work, uh, I thought we'd like to begin with this provocative title of your book, The Sovereignty of Quiet. Mm. Could you explain what that means? I could try, certainly. I, th- I think I wanted to spend time with the idea that quiet as a notion for the interior, right? If the interior is this wild and roaring and complicated and irrepressible and irreducible thing, that that notion could help us think differently about Blackness. Blackness, which is always represented as or imagined as loud or dramatic because it needs to do a certain kind of work in public and social discourse and vital work um, if we think about the long history of the United States, for example, the ways in which the movement for Black freedom and Black social justice have animated and and collated with other movements toward human betterment. But because of that kind of political and and social uh, context, I think that our ideation of Blackness runs toward the loud, the dramatic, the expressive that has a kind of legible public register and an imagining of the interior as flawed as it is to try to imagine the interior because it is not possible to represent it. Uh, But an imagining of the interior offers up a sense of appreciating then something else about the one whose interior we're trying to imagine. That is, if I can lapse into a kind of universal statement. Um, If we imagine that every human being has an interior that is beautiful and complicated and roaring and irrepressible and so on, then we are imagining something that is sacred about that, the humanity of that person. We don't have to then make arguments, social ones and public ones and political ones about the humanity of that person. We can imagine that 
they have a profound intelligence. We can imagine that they have in them ordinariness. We can imagine that they have the capacity for terribleness in them and that all of those things exist. And so for me, uh, I wanted to stay with the utter sovereignty, right? The kind of unparalleled dominion of the interior and to use that as a poetic uh, way to alight trying to, uh, to think differently about blackness, to disturb the common and, and common sense way in which we, we often think about blackness. And I should say too that the impulse to do that comes from my own studying and learning from uh, works by black women. And I, I think that there are ways in which that black women thinkers uh, through what we might now understand as intersectionality, but just in the ways in which I think at least the black women writers and thinkers that I've traveled with, that they understand blackness as a gender and classed thing, a thing that's prismed by sexuality, and also a thing that just has all these other kind of registers, whether they are domestic or work life ones and so on. And so I think there was something about that that made it uh, possible for me to want to think um, beyond what seemed like a fairly common sense vernacular of how we understand blackness. What I love about that answer is the, especially the use of the word sovereignty, mm. because the ambiguity, ambiguity mm. that you're playing, maybe it's probably the intersectionality that you're talking about when you're walking with these, with these uh, African-American women that you've learned from and studied from and walked with and journeyed with, is this sense of ambiguity because the word sovereignty on some level, you seem to be deconstructing the sovereignty that's been impl in, um, forced on us and forced on us to think about what blackness is mm -hmm. and, and colonizes the way we think about, you know, how our minds are run. So you mm -hmm. seem to be overturning that kind of sovereignty. And please correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is how it feels as I'm reading. And yet you've just offered this lovely response of what sovereignty actually is mm -hmm. if you allow for the wilderness and the wildness and the silence and the so is, is that is that, is that am I okay there or am I reading wrongly no. that is absolutely it that um, the wild the wilderness there's a lovely uh, podcast uh, Cassidy that you were on where you all were talking about mysticism the sense the sense of the, the mystery that is human life that cannot be controlled and indeed does not need to be controlled. Certainly sociality and our, our being with each other necessitates that we have to figure out how to navigate that wildness. But th there's a kind of um, voluptuousness or capaciousness. Um, it, is, it is beyond our control and yet it is entirely what we are and of us and hence the, the turn towards the idea of surrender as a way to maybe think about how we might conceptualize blackness differently. And yeah, it's, it's so, that's so important to me when I think about my own life in the midst of a an enduringly terrible world, when all of us think of our lives in the world, that we are certainly called by the terrible as well as the beautiful things that happen, but each of us 
also has our own our own orbit, right? That that constitutes how we will ordinate ourselves to the terrible or to the beautiful. And so I think that I think that's precisely it. I think it is precisely about a sovereignty that is not um, about possessiveness or control or order, as it is uh, maybe the sovereignty that is the the, the the chaotic rhythm that maybe it has an order, but it's an order that surpasses what we can fully fully behold, and that in and of itself is 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 as, at least as I understand it, that in and of itself is is the heartbeat of the thing. It's the heartbeat of me. Kevin, as I'm listening to you speak, and I think it it may be a little underlined, you know, the name Kevin, of course, we have two Kevins in this conversation today. The name Kevin comes out of, out of the Irish tradition. And in Irish mythology, sovereignty is a goddess figure. So, mm. so sovereignty mm. is linked to the divine feminine. Mm. And, and I think this is is such a rich area for the imagination because it contrasts, I mean, and I'm speaking just in the European context, but I think you can maybe extrapolate this globally, but contrast that maybe with the Roman model or the Anglo-Saxon model of, of domination, mm. which is more masculine, more that possessiveness you were speaking of, that urge to control, that will to power. And so... I, I, I find it very resonant that you are coming out of conversation with Black women writers mm. because of that feminine dimensionality here. And, and, and speaking, you know, as somebody, you know, who, who is assigned male and identifies as male, but it seems that, you know, I look at my interior and, and I see the divine feminine within. Mm-hmm. I, is there any resonance there for mm-hmm. you with mm-hmm. that? Or mm-hmm. I did yeah. not know that about the name, the name Kevin. I did. I did know that it is an Irish um, first names. Names are such interesting things because they are, in some ways, given to us, and then we we either become them or or figure out how to not become them or figure out <laughs> other ones. I I love that you called on the word domination, because I always think, uh, often when I'm reading, say, Toni Morrison's work, I think about how much Morrison is really fascinated by dominion, and but not necessarily domination. That is, that the sense of, and so for me, when I think of sovereignty, right, I, 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 I lean into the sense of, of dominion more than, obviously more, uh, entirely more than uh, domination. And, and yes, I think anytime we're talking about terms, whether they're spiritual terms or, again, terms of the interior, which are conceptually, at least in our, in our Western discourse, they're uh, gendered feminine. In a way, uh, the interior is this kind of domesticated habitat. It's distrusted, right? You think of the idea of hysteria, which is this, this feminine condition that um, it, it, it is, it is a, a, a an exterior manifestation of a an unreliable interior expression that um, that supposedly is the condition of nervous or um, I'm going to use this word, which can be a, a complicated word, crazy women, 
And yet all of those are sites of sites of knowing, right? That the, that the interior, if the interior is a series of, um, or a series of forces or energies or pulses or hungers or stored memories, et cetera, et cetera, then that's a site of knowing. And from that site, every human being is trying to make sense of their way in the world. And, and yet, because it can't fully be translated, can't fully be offered up to another person, certainly never mind be offered up to say the state or to write the, the institutionality of the social world, that it becomes then less and less legitimate as a storehouse or as a thing in which we can lean. But that's a perhaps a long-winded way to say yes. I think that all throughout it is a uh, if we if we are trapped by a gendered binary, then certainly there's a sense of the the feminine as a as an idea radiating through some of this. Yes, as as soon as I was finished asking the question, I was like, oh, that's such a binary question. <laughs> Thank you for being gracious in your response. Uh, well, we you know we the thing is right we this is the world we have, and it, it comes with this language and these ideas, and I think maybe the best we can do is nudge each other along in trying to, to figure out both how to use it and then how to recognize its, its limits. Yes, so. yes. Thank you so much for your graciousness of allowing, you know, horrible uses of words and, and things. I, I, I think what I've just heard in your answer, again, helps me because I'm thinking about instead of framing this in terms, the, the, the civilization, the culture seems to have given us this binary and has pushed male and female and in certain ways. Your language, again, with Sovereignty of Quiet and that title and your playing around and this idea of dominion, not domination, it allows, for, instead of me thinking male, female, start thinking in terms of those moments of control and dominion and possessiveness and those moments of, of wildness and, as you, I love that you said, voluptuous. Uh, this 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 open this this full this this broad this this whole that can't be captured in words and so therefore is silent and so if I can think those two ways and not maybe that can expand the binary so it doesn't have to be male is this female is that or or any of that which mm. just causes so much problems here I mean and maybe that's it, it feels like this is you really allowing for a positive space for blackness, as you said, as opposed to that, that seems to go into this, the, your new book. That's what you seem mm. to be a mm. positive space of what it, black uh, blackness and mm. defining that in a positive way as in it, as opposed to responding mm. to a whiteness. Mm. Uh, it's, it's letting the voice be heard on its own without it being told what it's supposed to be saying or something. Mm. Mm. There's just so much fruit here. It's just so rich uh, that mm. I, I feel like this book needs to be read four or five different times. Mm. But so thank you. That's not mm. even really a question. It's just more my comment about thank you for your gracious answers. Mm. You're, you're kind to say that, all of that. Um, and and maybe, maybe not even so much a positive uh, a, a positive conceptualization of blackness, but a, a conceptualization of 
blackness that stays open enough such that it can be habited by by the the the, the wild and voluptuous lives of yes. the people who are black, right? Yes. So that, so that the ideation, I mean, this is what the the ideation of like marginalized people has such a profound impact then on what marginalized people are supposed to understand themselves as and or resist that right and and this becomes part of a of discourses so for me it was um just trying just trying to figure out in as powerful as a discourse of resistance is that the orientation of resistance to whatever might harm you in the world, especially the structures that might harm you, cannot possibly big enough to constitute the being of someone. So maybe I should localize it. Cannot possibly be big enough to constitute my being. And so what else might I say as I read and think with these texts? And that part of it too was, you asked about the title, the sovereignty of quiet, and the other word there is quiet, which is which I read partly as a synonym. As we're talking, I read it as a synonym synonym of the work that you all have been doing to think about the breadth of how we might understand silence. But in the project, I was also trying to be careful about not using silence because of certain ways in which silence as a term gets circulates, right? That it, it circulates in a kind of um, a, a feminized way, right? That it, it's uh, as if one is talking about a quality of a softened voice or that there's ways in which even sometimes the discourse of, of silence as retreat can, can have these, what's the word I want? maybe romanticize it. There's something that can be perceived as if it is a privilege removal from a world, right? So that one imagines that one can go on a silent retreat, et cetera. And I, I wanted a thing, the thing lives in the person, right? Even though I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm not really talking about people, which is why I say blackness rather than say black people, but the thing lives in the human, all of it. And it's, and quiet, or what I even understand to be uh, silence, as you all have been engaged in it over the, the years on this podcast, it is anything but passive. It is roiling, and it is it has a fieriness. It has all kinds. Think of water. It has all of the inflections and moods and motions and um, ferocity and stillness, as does water. And I think our language, because we have to share language, language with each other, our vocabulary about these things becomes so loaded that I wanted to avoid, um, I, I, I didn't want it to sound like I was saying at all, especially because I was making a comment on resistance. I didn't want it to sound like I was saying that black people should be silent, even though in a poetic instance i'm i can imagine a poet writing something like to be silent in myself without it then all of a sudden taking on that kind of social political historical register of asking or telling marginalized folks black folks any anyone to be silent i wanted to avoid some of the maybe the ways privilege and i keep using that word 
the, the ways in which contemplativeness or privacy or all of those terms don't always immediately show up uh, when we're thinking and talking about black subjects, right? That I love the film In Pursuit of Silence. I know you all do too. I, I found it late, but and have watched it now maybe three times. And I, I wonder sometimes what, what would it mean if, if there were like a meditation, uh, a part three of that film, for example, and what, what if it traveled through spaces where most of the people who were being um, engaged were people who from our common visual apparatus, people we could identify as black. What if our understanding of places on the African continent was through an idiom of the pursuit of silence? What would that look like? Because it has to be possible, right? It's not, it's not as if these things don't also live in human beings, those human beings. And so I think the term silence, though I, you know, I speak, I say in the book that I'm trying to not think about silence because of those registers. And though in, 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 the, larger, in the larger sense of the word silence as a metaphor for all of the things we've been talking about, then quiet and silence are friends, right? Or cousins. I like the aesthetic quality that quiet brings, that one could say a quiet song, and it makes sense in the way that one could say a silent song, but that, that it's a kind of poetic leap that doesn't necessarily have the same immediacy, but you could say a quiet song, you could say a quiet building. So all of a sudden, it becomes clearer and clearer, clearer that one is trying to point to a, a, a different kind of aesthetic or maybe even a philosophical uh, capacity, but in in truth, it is it it is the work of of trying to get to think with the contemplative, and to understand the ways in which um, the circuits of conversation around the contemplative sometimes exclude, or at least maybe not exclude, sometimes too easily incorporate. The, the, the social divisive, right, incorporates ideas about race or gender and so on, such that we, we have to almost re, um, reinsert certain subjects into, into a, a, a contemplative imagining, which shouldn't have to happen because contemplativeness is, it is difficult to sustain in our contemporary world, but it, it is my, it, it, might well be the only thing. And now I've said that dramatic thing that I'll have to qualify later on, um, which I'm okay to qualify later on. Kevin, my mind is a flutter. Uh, the things we've been going through, um, you know, when we talk about domination, I, I bring to mind Bell Hooks and yeah. her work in feminism is for everybody when she says that where there's domination, there cannot be love. And you know, then I think about what you were saying earlier about Black women and the ways that we see how Black women have undergirded social movements and allowed allowed them to to thrive and exist. And, you know, I also think about Howard Thurman, mm. a very quiet man who many point to as a, another undergirder of, of movements um, with his relationship with King and, and whatnot. And in your book, 
in the chapter titled The Practice of Paying Attention, you mm-hmm. write, quiet helps us to understand the activism involved in being aware, in paying attention, in considering. And you end that chapter by saying, quiet is the habitat of the inner life, a selfhood not based on race or gender, but on the rages of the interior, a subjectivity sobered and armed by possibility. So as you distinct, you know, quiet and silence, and as we talk also about activism, I'm wondering if you could speak more to that transformation maybe within and mm. because of the quiet that allows the output. Mm. I also think about, of course, Audre Lorde's essay, the transformation of silence into language and action. And, and it strikes me that, that this word that you are working with as a truth, the way that you're, you're waking up that word for people, you're waking up the word quiet for people, you're mm. making it come alive. Mm. And I, and yeah, how, how do people go to that space and then, and then take it out? Um, how does activism and quiet align? Mm. Mm. I don't know that I have an answer, but I, I absolutely am so grateful for your phrasing of this idea of trying to wake up the word quiet. Um, maybe this I'll take a wandering way into this question. I think often I... I'm afraid that people will misunderstand or mishear me as if I am suggesting a retreat from the the world of things. And um, as the world has, the world we live in now, and here I'm thinking especially on the US national scene has just cracked open again, right? Um, Perhaps uh, we can can, uh, locate that cracking open again last February as the pandemic started to have its impact on the country, which exposed all of the kind of asymmetries that we know exist. And then uh, May and June and July, which were such intense moments again of trying to reckon with anti-Black violence. Now we're in a season of anti-Asian violence, a rise that we're seeing. And, and the call the call is often to those of us who want to be on the side of, of good or right is that we should be out doing something. And indeed, I believe that. And, and I'll just say from my own experience that the, the, the call, explicit, implicit, in total towards me as a Black person feels like I have to feels like I have to not only do something, but by virtue of being in this body, um, I have to also stand for the doing of something, right? That I have to become emblematic of it. And uh, it, is a, it is a suffocating place. It's a suffocating reality. And, and maybe that is a, um, uh, I, I, I didn't, uh, that that word might seem like a, a lazy word to use, given some of the context of the ways in which um, Black people have been harmed by agents of the state, especially. But I think the human animal is always doing. Blood is pulsing through the body. The cells are doing things. Thoughts are happening. 
ideas are being reconciled. And I mean this for people that we, our language about what, what it means to be an activist and to be active falls prey to thinking about a certain upright human being moving through the world on their legs, right? And now I'm being deliberate about thinking about how we normalize the, the kind of agentized human as we think about it. I think the contemplative tradition tells me, how can I deepen my attentiveness so as to be clearer, so as to be more ethically oriented, such that my actions and my alliances are more attuned to what I understand, more attuned to what I'm capable of, more attuned to what I hope to affect, more attuned to all of that so that I can even risk more and therefore become more than I thought myself to be. And that contemplative invitation to to think with and through and as oneself, as part of a, a process of then being able to think with others and be with others. That, that oneness, which comes up in the project on quiet and, and I take up again in the, in the work on black aliveness, we hardly ever offer we, right? I'm using a, a, a generic language it seems like we hardly ever offer the right of oneness to black subjects, to black people, because blackness has to belong to the social world. So there, it belongs to the collective because we so desperately need, and I hope people don't mishear this. I, I, I believe it. I know how important the, the, attending to the collective, whether that is one doing it with one's bodies or one's ideas or one's financial resources, etc. As I understand it, the human is better oriented to the doing of whatever that human might do through a practice of thinking, what do I feel? What do I need? Where do I hurt? What do I want? What am I afraid of? What don't I know? Whom do I trust? How can I trust a little more? And, and those questions might seem modest. They might even seem to some people uh, naive, but I think ooh, the greater practice of self-awareness is, is the thing that animates self-transcendence, which is the thing that becomes the ethical ground on which one might try to think and act more beautifully and more capably. And, and to think and act more beautifully and capably in the company of others. And then through that process, there is more. So, right, so it's a process of relation, as I, I think of the kind of iconic uh, Jewish philosophers and thinkers who have offered us such good work on relation. I think of um, particularly Martin Buber or Edouard Gaffant, the Martinican philosopher who thinks about relation and relation is interested in the, the, the possibility to be with that comes from the preparedness of the one to actually be able to be with. In some ways, it's like love. We often think of love as the two, but um, as, a, as a practice, love is about how can I be prepared to yield and surrender to this thing that will happen that I, I will not know I cannot know 
who I will be, what will come of this being with another. So how can I be prepared to actually be there and be there as rightly as possible? So I think the it, it, it's that when I think about the, the activist thing, I think about uh, the traditions I know best, the civil rights traditions, how much spiritual preparedness and meditation those um, young people often engage. Their singing together was in some ways a chanting together, which was both collective, but also, right, also in each of them. And uh, in our turn to think about Blackness through the collective, I don't think we respect enough the incredible, astonishing practice of intelligence that lives in each one of those people as they are doing this holy thing. And it, it, in fact, it loses some of its, some of its force is lost because we only see it as, as, a, as a force of the collective rather than recognizing, oh my, that this, is, this is a force of a, of a many, many, many ordinary beings finding in themselves this, this wellspring of we will do, or maybe not even we will do, I can try to do. And, and each of them is in an instance of an I can try to do. But I'm, yeah, that's one of the things I would say about the, the I, I value so much how important it is to think about the political. And, and I don't, don't want to seem naive about the scale of the terrible that surrounds and confronts us. But I'm also aware that we live in these bodies with these histories and these needs and that we act from these bodies and these histories and these needs. And so the, there's something about the scale of quiet as being the scale that I can think with and try to make sense then of, of what it is to try and live a meaningful life. This, this reminds me of, of a quote in your most recent book, Black Aliveness or Poetics of Being. On page 44, you say this, and I circled and highlighted this, and I'll probably re read this over and over to myself for a while. And it, it follows up with what you just said about oneness. And you say, oneness is a practice of knowing that could be described as I am knowing as I am knowing. In this compounded phrase, the first clause establishes certainty and the second revels in dissolution. The ethos here is a fidelity to what one knows so as to deepen and then surpass that knowing. So you're, you have this gift of using language, this aesthetic use of language, turning nouns into turning silence and waking silence up, quiet up turning it into action and yet allowing it to be quiet. And you're doing that here with talking about how oneness is a way and this way that unfolds and unpacks and, and, and self-discovers mm -hmm. and does that in relation to otherness, otherness inside oneself and otherness with the world. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just your, your writing is poetic. Truly, truly poetic the way you use that word too, the poesis, the, the Greek idea of creating something new as, as the Greek used to use that language. So 
So I, I, I deeply appreciate that. Um, is this idea of poesis, when did you, this really feels like this is moving your, this book, this most recent book. Is this recent for you, this, this use of this word or, or is this always, because we love poetry on this podcast and we talk about poetry very often, but now we're doing right here, you're actually talking about how poetry is a making, that life becomes poetic. Our humans are, persons are poetic, are poesis. So I'm just kind of curious as to your playing around with that word, uh, how you're using it and when you first started to use that. A, a scholar friend, uh, Margaret Crawford, who uh, teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, was the one who highlighted that term for me. I might have had, I might have had the word in the, one of the many drafts, but she highlighted that word. But I think my relationship to thinking with poetry has always been, as I think it's for many of us, a sense of fear and humility, as in I won't get this, and also a desire. I want to go there. I want to, like, can I, can I become what I need to become to inhabit this thing, which I won't completely get anyway? And so that yeah, and, and so in a way, right, that's a quiet relationship if, if one is, is going along with the idea that I've suggested. It's also relational in the sense of, like, I take a deep breath and I step or move into this thing as fully aware of myself as I can, but also fully aware that I am enough and I might not be enough. And and there's that there's that thing of the... Yeah, that, that capacity is there. So I think of every poem as offering to each of us when we go to it as the possibility to be remade, but part of the being remade is, is a kind of, if not a shoring up, a, a recognition of the madeness of, of the you who goes to this thing and in the process of being with this thing is going to be remade. It's not possible for you to be the same as you were before. And that's, and there's a way in which that's terrifying. And there's also a way in which that's the awesome of a, any encounter with a text, with another human being, with an idea. So I think uh, if, if you're asking specifically about uh, poesis, the term, it is, it is newer to me. But in terms of trying to teach and think with poetry, I think I've always kind of had that orientation. As a, I, you know, I move through the world as a, um, a in this body, right, a, a body that's visibly legible as black, that that reads as male, identifies as male, is, uh, identifies as queer, with his own long history of of complicated difficulties around what it means to move in this body. One things that are both specific to growing up in a, in a difficult family, and then the way in which that gets amplified by all of the things in the social world. And in a way, you know, I always moved with a sense of trying to assure myself that I was enough. I think of my, my mother's mother, who died when I was seven, but who remains still this late in my life, um, the most vibrant relation that I have. And I say this in the, in the uh, first book, the one on, um, 
on becoming the subject of the first book I wrote, I say that I, I don't know if she said this, but I think I remember my grandmother saying this, right? So it's already, the thing is already framed by like, like it's an un, a thing of unknowing on which I'm leaning profoundly. And it's this, you may not be better than anyone in the world, but no one in the world is better than you. And, oh, as I say that now, I'm, I'm almost about to fall into tears. And in the early part of my life, maybe the first 20 or 25 years of my life, when, when things were so difficult in a way that I, um, well, when things were so difficult, I think I leaned more heavily on the second half. No one is, in the world is better than you. I was a fat, very effeminate, very quiet. Now here I mean uh, shy, introverted. I am still indeed both of those things. Uh, person, child. And yet I had this, this ferocity of no one in the world is better than me. I didn't act on it. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't manifest it, right? That I didn't have, I didn't have available to me the performing performance registers of what it would be to, to inhabit that in a, in a way that other people might read. But it was something of a, of a star in, in, in my sky as I, I, just, I just moved with that. And it allied with my heart and helped me get through those days. It was in my mid-20s when I thought, I don't even know if my grandmother said this or if I had invented it through as a prayer that I needed through the idea of all of the things that my grandmother either said or just the, the gentle things she did that I translated into the language that I would need to get through the days. But I, I heard the first half, you may not be better than anyone in the world. You may, and, and the conditional, right? That the, that the conditional leaves it open. And, and I thought, oh, well, that's your work too. Your work is to remember that whatever it is that you are trying to understand about how you are in the world and how you're trying to be as just a decent person on earth, it's not special. And if it is special, then everyone is of it. And if everyone is of it, then it can't be special. And so can you live with that? And can that help you cultivate a way for you to still navigate the world and with whatever kind of grace or modesty or ordinariness or all of it, all being the same, grace, modesty, ordinariness. And then to imagine that every person, including ones you don't know, might also have in them that same thing. And I think if I'm being incredibly transparent, I think that's all of the work I've done and that's all of the work I will try to do both as a, as a person who thinks with ideas, um, a person who, who, who teaches, who studies, and then as a person who goes to the store and tries to acknowledge that thing I've just said to you, try to carry that thing to the person who's helping me at the store and, and who fails at it miserably and then trying to find the energy the next day to get up and to carry that too. And that's, I don't, I don't say that personally because I don't, I don't necessarily work in an explicit first person register, but it is, if I'm being truthful, that's, that's all the work is. It's that, is that question.
Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. Thank you for that that sharing, that transparency. It's deeply moving. I, I'm on the verge of tears myself as you are touching a bunch of things for me personally. I, I just find it's so incredible to kind of hear you describe the ordinary as extraordinary and the need to remember those stars that we might that might not actually be. <laughs> As you said, your grandmother might not have said that, and I, and I, I re- have a couple of memories of for myself that of of similar things, and I now ask myself the question: Did I misremember? Is that not what they said? But it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> it almost doesn't matter because it, it was it was needed um, and is still needed, and so yeah, I appreciate that very much. Thank you for that answer. I just finished Sonia Renee Taylor's "The Body Is Not an Apology." And you're reminding me of a few things she said in the book. She talks about when we liberate ourselves from the expectations that we must have everything figured out, we enter a sanctuary of empathy. And she also talks about this infinite nature of space, right? And this, that we deserve to take up our space and, and that, that notion of, needing to take up our space is born out of a framework of scarcity. And hearing your grandmother's words, I'm just amazed by the way that you took that those words, regardless of if they were spoken to you or they were a prayer that you created out of need and out of knowledge. Do you see your work as continuing to reincarnate those words or continuing to carry that message forth maybe in new ways and with new language so that more people can feel that and experience that. I am so glad that you um, mentioned that book, The Body's Not an Apology, because I've been wanting to read it and haven't yet. And I am, this is the gift of being with people is, yeah, you find, you find a new, a thing that you thought, how could I have been living without this? So thank you for, um, thank you for bringing that into the space. And I'm, I will, I will come to the question. I think I'm coming to the question by going partly back to one of the last things Kevin just said about the ordinary and the extraordinary. I think for me, that's, that's the scale on which I can manage is that the ordinary you know, and that's a, for me, I think especially about Lucille Clifton, uh, that great American poet, great black woman poet. Clifton's vernacular, and when I say vernacular, I don't just mean a, a kind of a spoken idiom. I actually mean 
the kind of language and the kind of words she thinks with is incredibly ordinary and commonplace. And yet in, in every one of those poems, which are often themselves small, is a scale, is, is a cosmos of a thing. And the, the, the scale for me, the scale is always through the ordinary. And in that way, there was something, and now I won't recall it, but I, I will say, Cassidy, there was something in, in the conversation you were having about mysticism on your podcast, where there was a moment where you corrected, you were beginning to talk about a, a kind of uh, elevated scale of mysticism, and you corrected yourself and you said, well, I don't want to romanticize this because right, this thing lives in, this, this idea of the mystic or the mystery probably inhabits in every person. And I, I believe that. Uh, Elizabeth Alexander in a poem has the phrase, God in the details, which are, are Marie Howe, whom I know you all have spoken with in the poem, What the Living Do. There's the dishes to be done and the ordinariness of doing the dishes is in a way or can be a holy thing. I don't mean to suggest like some film moment where there's a gorgeous hand washing over and there's beautiful suds and nice music. I just see, simply mean that however one can in that moment be with the attention of doing the thing you're doing. And our attentiveness is not the same in every moment. That register of being alive and slightly more alive then that matters to me. So to, to answer the, the question, um, Cassidy, I think if we, were, if we were supported to do it, each of us has a question we're trying to pursue in the world. And some of us get lucky to find either resources or people or institutions to support us to do it. And I only have one question and it is, it is the, the mixed up question of what I've been talking about for the last 15 or 20 minutes. And I'm just trying to think with that more and more, especially to think with it in and through ideas of Blackness, trying to think about Black aliveness in the midst of a world scene that gives us every day so many examples of Black killedness and gives then to Black people, gives to us only the language that we we are death. And I understand the kind of pro provocation that's there theoretically to take up death as, a, as an imaginary. And I also wonder, well, if we are going to take up death as an imaginary for blackness, what about the ordinary of death? What about the, the, the threat of death that comes for us all, all of us humans? That, that that too is a register of encountering oneself as a human that I think sometimes gets excluded from our dominant discourses. And again, I don't want to be naive. I don't feel like I'm naive, but I do think I am alive and I am trying to be accountable to that being alive, which I also take as a severe responsibility on the scale that I can manage that severe responsibility. And it's just that, it's, I, it's just that. And isn't that enough? Mm. Right? I mean, mm. it's also a question, right? We're all circling around. Mm. Mm. But I love what you just did, right? You said, and isn't that enough? 
And the question opened up the space for you to do the work of thinking with it, to be able to say in this instance, yeah, I believe that's enough. And then you might come around to another moment where you ask the question again and you might not get there. I think that's it. That's the, that's the you know, I'm knowing as I know that that's the, that's the contemplative practice. And I don't also mean to suggest at all that it is clear that every person who's black and is alive in the world has an interior is right. Oh, con- contemplativeness is lives in every human. So in some ways, my, my studies are about uh, how we read or think about the representational language that we have. But yeah, I love that. And isn't that enough? And then I loved you giving us a chance to see you work through it. That, that, that and that for me is enough. Kevin, I, I so appreciate your vulnerability in talking about your experience, your embodied experience of childhood. And I'm curious about kind of your journey with quiet. And I wonder if you can tell us how you met quiet in your own body, whether this is when you were two or 22 or, you know, just, and, and if there is any insight that you might have, and I I think part of where I'm going for this, and I, and again, I, you know, I cannot speak for black bodies, but speaking as, as a Caucasian person, as a white person, I see so many people who seem to be alienated from their own quiet. Mm. And so, you know, one of the questions that I find myself coming back to is how do we reintroduce ourselves Mm. to our quiet? So I'm Mm. curious if you could shed any light on that. Mm. I think maybe my earliest, if, if my earliest sense of the way that my high-voiced, fat, black boy body, feminine, even femme, black boy body, in, you know, in a a world, a context that didn't really, um, there are lots of things wrong about that, that boy in that body. And I, I think, I think I remember myself feeling so wrong before I could even say something that my practice became like I had conversations in my head with myself so that I right that I I very early on cultivated what for lack of a better term I might call an interior world and created a a dialectic or a dialogue with myself and uh, I, I guess I imagine too that that could have there are ways in which that could have developed as a kind of pathology, or at least developed, if not a pathology, developed in, in ways that might have made my moving through the social world be more complicated than it is. But in some ways, I was maybe studying and writing and thinking about what I was feeling and reading, even if I couldn't say. And I think I developed very early on, certainly five, six, seven-year-old. I, I remember, I remember being five or six years old and knowing that I was attracted to boys, 
and knowing that I would have to account for this in some way, that this would be some trouble, and knowing that I would never lie about it, but I would also, I could never actually admit it. So I would have to, I would have to find creative ways around it as a five or six year old. And that, that's not just, I don't think of that only as it being about sexuality. I, I think of it as being about me trying to, what won't I betray about this thing? And yet what, what can I do to try and navigate this thing in the world? So I think I developed a, my, my sweetheart is a, is a person who is, if we are going somewhere, he is very attuned to the buildings and um, the, the weather and the trees. He is uh, he's, uh, almost categorically afraid of people. So he doesn't notice people. I will notice people and or I will have this incredible interior landscape narrative soundtrack play drama going on in my head and and it's a habit from childhood and so in some ways maybe it was a a, a gesture of some protection so that saying be, became saying out loud became less important to me as a young person and again that has its consequences i think i had to develop um, later on, a, a sense of how it is to know urgently when one, when this one, when me, when I want and need to say out loud, um, which is different than when one should say out loud. And I had to figure out that differentiation around all kinds of issues, et cetera, et cetera. But I think f for me, it was a sense of, oh, I will, I will develop a conversation with myself. And I developed a conversation with myself, and that was that was my quiet. Maybe in the ways that some psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic thinkers talk about the way children play, I think, yeah, I think maybe that's one way I would conceptualize it. And it's laced with, you know, as I'm saying it, um, it's laced with prickly, prickliness, tenderness. And part of being able to go there is is also, Carl, the, the kind of manner of your asking, the, the way in which you, yeah, that I, I could have answered that question in, in a way that was less tender to me, um, but something in the manner of your asking made it so that there was an acknowledgement that it could be, that it could be tender, which makes the inhabitant of the tender a little bit more possible, at least, at least on this day. You know, again, thank you for that. Oh, just so moving answer. Uh, again, I feel that your answer allows me to kind of inhabit spaces in myself that I didn't even recognize I needed to uh, spend some time with. So, yeah, I am. I'm in the moment flying here as I'm thinking about just some images popped up from my past that I was not thinking about, but you're comments have, have brought them forth for me. And uh, I recognize myself in that inner conversation of needing to rehearse something before you say it so that uh, there wouldn't be certain consequences or um, things that I didn't want to confront. And so 
And I, I, I think, I think that's a space that many, that, that's very ordinary and very vulnerable for a lot of us and necessary to place that on the table, I think, of this is what it means to have this body and be in this world and do these things. And a contemplative will uncover that. Mm. And so I, 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 I profoundly appreciate your response. I see that you're very comfortable with going to these spaces that are, are very vulnerable. And, and I totally appreciate that. And in, in the book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, you, you start the book off with that iconic image of, of Tommy Smith and John Carlos with their fists raised mm-hmm. and their head in prayer and all that that meant in that, that space, all the we bring to that, to look at that image and what, what that meant for them and what we think that means. How, how does that image, why, why did you place that image at the beginning of the book? How does that help you unpack mm. sovereignty of quiet? Mm. I just remember seeing that image and being so moved by it. And as a young person, I wasn't, um, I wasn't alive when they did that, but, you know, grew up in a, in a, in a cultural space where I knew that image and being so moved by it. And as a young person, not, I hadn't disaggregated what I was moved by. I was just moved by it. Um, and it was a still image. It wasn't, uh, wasn't accompanied by a story or it wasn't like a documentary or something. And so I think, right, it, the, the, first, the first line of interrogation is, oh, these are two beautiful black men, or at least two beautiful black men by the standard that my young person has and so my young person self has and so that's what I'm moved by and so it stays with me and then over time I kept thinking no there's some there's just something astonishing that's happening here um, and as I was became older and, and studied uh, through various disciplines where that the 1968 Mexico City Olympics came up I, I was just surprised that all of the ways it had been talked about, it hadn't yet resonated with me as a way of explicating this thing that I felt and had carried with me for, you know, maybe 30 years, 35 years. And it was, it was that, as I thought about it, it was that mix of this strength, not power, this strength and this deliberateness and this resoluteness and those bowed heads, those, those bowed heads, those curved, tender, vulnerable, vulnerable, not watching, totally in surrender to the thing they were doing. And in, in, in a in a stadium of lots of people, including U.S. Olympic officials who would immediately punish them for this. But there was something about their doing in public, a thing that was absolutely so intimate or private or it, I'm still I'm still without like full words to I, I should be a little bit more um, articulate about it. I was stunned. I was stunned by a display 
of something that wasn't oriented towards display. And that these two black men were doing something that the force of it was, the force of it to the world was magnificent, but didn't match at all the glimpse that we got of the magnificent of what they were actually doing. So that we were, it's almost, I don't quite know terms of physics, right? But we were seeing like a refraction of something and thinking, oh, that's spectacular. But that we actually could, if we wanted to, try to behold the more spectacular than the thing we were actually seeing. I was, I was astonished by that. And for me, I thought, well, so then the question became, why do I think that that kind of reading, or at least the recognition that I think I had, hasn't shown up in how people are talking about this image? And the, the, the political discourse around the moment, the political discourse around blackness, maybe even around black masculinity, right? Because there were black women athletes who also protested in ways. There are white athletes, Peter Norman, who's on the podium, who's from Australia, is also protesting. But there, there's something about that kind of superlative power of blackness as resistance that almost makes us not be able to see this actually more astonishing thing this grace of these two human beings. Uh, I'm, I, I, didn't, I didn't expect that trying to talk about that would leave me fumbling for words, but I think it, it was that. And um, in the work, in the writing I do, the studying I do, I, uh, I, I write from beginning to end um, that I, uh, and so I started there because because that was everything. And everything came from that surrender, vulnerability, prayer, collectivity, all the, everything came from there. Um, I'm, still, I'm still astonished by their capacity to display a thing that's actually not displayable. It's so beautiful. It's so humbling and, um, and more humbling the more we could think of that and appreciate that about it, as well as appreciate all of the other ways it, it, it spoke in a kind of larger social and political register. It's, it is hard for us to see anyone rightly. I mean, see both in a, a, as a visual register, but I also just mean see as, a, as in apprehend, behold. And it is especially hard for us to see blackness rightly because all these other things come into the frame. And so that's what I would say. If I could also go back, uh, Kevin, the last thing you said, you said, use the phrase, a contemplative will see blah, blah, blah. There was some sense you were using the word contemplative as a noun, right? As like a contemplative person would see this, but a happy accident happened where you said a contemplative will, right? So that will is no longer, in that instance, you were using it as an auxiliary verb, but I heard it as a noun and I thought, oh, 
What a phrase! What a what a phrase! It's a, it goes back maybe to part of what uh, Cassidy, um, some of the things you were asking, too, in, in terms of like thinking about the potential political register of the thing, um, that there could be a contemplative will, a will that generates out of a contemplative uh, practice, and will is not in terms of dominion, not in terms of domination. So I loved that moment. Uh, um, and I wanted to make sure to say that. You're reminding me of the, um, the contemplative writer, Gerald May, who wrote a book called Will and Spirit. And he contrasts will with willfulness, mm. which I think is similar to what you are um, you were describing with the dominion and domination. So yeah, that's lovely. Mm, will and spirit. I'm going to write that one down. Kevin, I know we could go on and on and on. I know we need to wind down soon. I just want to mention I'm really struck by the way you're talking about all these aspects of life. It seems to me like you're almost speaking into what holistic quiet looks like. And you're, you're again, right? You're waking it up, you're bringing it to life. And we talk about, you know, the image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and everything within that image and behind that image. And it, again, it feels like this holistic, this 3D, this embodied. And you also speak to aesthetics and you know, oftentimes we can find ourselves moved by aesthetics, by beautiful things, by things that captivate us. And I'm wondering if you think when holistic quiet is embedded in something, its output in the form of aesthetics, do you think it can reach deeper inside the other? Mm or the looker, or the, you know, the seer. Mm. And I also want to mention, you know, I think even a part, I think even a part of this holisticness is you telling the story about your young self and the tenderness that you are saying, no, come along, mm. not stay back there, but no, you're here too. Mm. This is all mm. here. That struck my, my little tender heart. So thank you mm. so much. Mm. Mm. There is something in, in finding a capacity to bring as many of ourselves along, right? That that's the thing about it not being what I so appreciate about this podcast and the way in which you all continue to try to open up the idea of silence is you, you are trying to move it, I think, whether this is a, an explicit goal, move it from the registers of a, of a privileged thing or as a thing that Right, that that um, becomes a practice, and to understand it as as a radiant possibility, and yeah, as a, as a part of a totality in people, and so there is this thing about bringing along one's as many parts of oneself as one can, and and the forgiveness, the forgiveness all of us need to enact towards ourselves. I, I said that thing about having a conversation with myself, and the most challenging moments in my childhood, including moments where I was confused vis-a-vis -vis my relationship to causing 
or being responsible in part for some uh, challenging uh, harm, challenging violences done to me. I, I, because I talked to myself, I had a relationship as, a, as an adult to being able to talk to that self and regard that self and bring that self along. So I appreciate you pointing that out, but more than pointing it out, deepening the register of it, which goes to your question. That's what I think is so fantastic about the poetic or poesis. That's what I think is so fantastic about thinking about relation or encounter as a way to think about what it means to be in the world, such that the, the next idea, the next book, the next song, the next person you meet might indeed be the revelation and revolution of your world. You don't know. How can you be prepared for that moment? Now, it's impossible to walk with that kind of heft of burden of preparedness in every moment. But what would it mean to try to attune or work towards that as a way of moving? And so that's also how I think of aesthetics. That's how I think about the, the Smith and Carlos image, the, the sense that I can look at it and think, oh, I know this. But then if I'm trying to practice a relational inhabitance, I'm called to look again and again and again and to slow down. And I know I get it. The world doesn't permit that. And there's so much. But even in the each of us in this conversation have essentially done this, where we have looped back to something someone has said before moving forward. Each of us in this conversation, in looping back, loops some part of ourselves into it, whether we explicitly say something about ourselves. And what that's, that's that practice of uh, a through line that, that's moving in a series of, of circles. And um, again, I, I, I understand how sometimes saying these things might seem so idyllic or so hard to hold on to. Um, and, and so in contrast to the kind of immediate materiality of uh, a difficult world scene that we're in, that there might seem to be a gap between what we're saying and the world just beyond where each of us is. Um, I understand that the perception of that gap, but if I think about my trying to deepen my capacity to, to feel and think and be and act, then that gap doesn't feel that big to me. And so I, um, aesthetics, the work, the work of trying to be prepared to look or see or think or hear again, feel again with a thing that, that you've encountered and that you think you, you know. Aesthetics can be a political practice in that way. Kevin, we've already established that Four out of four people on this podcast agree that, that poetry is of the soul. And so we are wondering if you might have a poem or a verse or really anything that you would like to share with our listeners. Mm. I do. I do. I, I also just so appreciate that, that you all engage poetry so regularly as if, as if to try to make it part of the vernacular of our lives. 
it's a Lucille Clifton poem. And in a way, um, it's not necessarily a poem about silence or quiet because in a way, I think all poems really are of quiet. In the, in the, if I'm following the trajectory that um, Cassidy set up in asking about aesthetics, that what a poem demands of us is a relation where we solidify as best as we can our capacity to go there and then surrender into the there. And so all poems are quiet. And so a Lucille Clifton poem, it's a pretty iconic poem. It's, it's untitled as many of her verses are, but it's known by its first line, won't you celebrate with me? So this is Lucille Clifton, won't you celebrate with me? Won't you celebrate with me what I've shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight, my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day Something has tried to kill me and has failed. There are many things I love about that poem, but reading it today, I love, I love the gesture of invitation, which is the speaker making that gesture really to herself. And then maybe also potentially to any person who's willing to behold this process of watching this self meeting self between this black woman speaker and herself. I know that the, the speaker in that poem uh, identifies, names herself as, as a black woman. Um, and I know that I, I inhabit the world not as a black woman. Um, I love that poem. I love offering it to people because people who are black and female need it. I love offering it because I think it's, it's gesture of celebration as interrogation as practice of contemplativeness is something from which we can all learn. It may not belong to all of us if the language of belonging is what we use, but it is indeed in the world and we're lucky for it. So Lucille Clifton, won't you celebrate with me? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you for such kindness through all of this and um, engagedness. Um, and I try to practice listening as we're talking. And it was so, so easy to listen, hear your words and learn from them. So thank you very much, really. And um, I am a, a, a fan and a student and, um, and will continue to be that of of your work um, on this podcast, Cassidy, on yours um, too. So, yeah, yeah, what a gift. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. 
My website is CassidyHall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.